What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. several weeks to uh, go through all the details of each implement and each thing, but um, we're actually going to look at all of this tonight in one teaching. Uh, I'm going to explain at the end kind of why we're doing that, because next week we're going to be starting some new things on Thursday night, but uh, we're going to finish our study through Exodus by just looking at the tabernacle. This is the final thing uh, that we haven't covered yet, and so it's not going to be as in-depth as I originally hoped, because we don't have the time to do it, but I do hope that we do have just a good overview of its purpose, uh, that we're going to look at each individual thing. Um, you know, we'll look at it a little bit, not super in depth, but uh, the biggest thing that we're going to focus on is just kind of God's redemptive plan uh, through the tabernacle and what it speaks about. And so um, the details of the tabernacle actually take up seven full chapters of Exodus. Uh, and so I've decided tonight to do things differently. Normally we take each verse and kind of, you know, expound upon it, look at it. You know, it would take us the majority of our night just for me to read it. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of bring up the different elements, the different things that are there. I'm going to just explain them, talk about them, but I'm not going to read all the verses connected to it because it would just take up way too much time. But I do want to encourage you in your own time, go back, read through these chapters that deal with all the details. And, and hopefully after you get the overview of what's happening, the details, uh, will just give you more understanding of all the things that God wants us to understand through it. Uh, and so it's a quite a large undertaking uh, for this study to be all in one thing. And so we are going to go a little bit longer than usual just in our study time, but we'll kind of take that out of you know the prayer time and the discussion time that we usually have after. And so let's just jump right into the teaching. The first thing I want us to note about the tabernacle is seen in Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, and it says this, God is speaking to Moses, and he says, and see to it that you make everything in the tabernacle according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. And so God gives Moses a very specific pattern, and he wants everything in the tabernacle, everything that's in it, how it's to be structured, all the dimensions, everything is supposed to be very specific. God doesn't want them just to kind of do their own thing. It has a very specific pattern to it, and he wants that pattern followed exactly. And there are two main reasons why God has this very specific pattern that he once followed exactly by the nation of Israel. The first reason is seen in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, which we're told, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, 
He would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So you see here that the tabernacle that's being made by the Israelites that you know, is being directed by Moses this is a man-made tabernacle that's made here on earth, but it's to be patterned after the God-made tabernacle there in heaven. And so this is one of the reasons why this is so important, where God says, you know, make things, all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain, because the first reason that God wanted the earthly tabernacle to follow this very specific pattern is because it is patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. It's supposed to give us this picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And so God's going to give very specific directions for the material to be used, for the dimensions of everything. And this is one of the areas that we're really not going to get into great detail tonight because, once again, we're, we're, we're dealing with a time crunch. And so, you know, this first reason where it's kind of a picture of what we see in heaven, we won't get into a lot of the details of that, but I hope that a lot of the visuals that I use tonight will give you kind of a, a good picture of what the heavenly tabernacle would look like. We're going to spend the majority of our time tonight looking at the second reason that God wants this tabernacle to follow a very specific pattern, and that's because the tabernacle is a wonderful picture of God's plan of redemption, a plan to redeem sinful mankind through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as we look at the tabernacle, as we look at all the major things that are in it, we're going to see this wonderful picture of God's plan of redemption clearly seen within the tabernacle and everything that he had the Israelites design. Now, there are three main parts of God's plan of redemption, and we're going to see all three of those things here in the tabernacle. So here's a bird's eye picture if we go down to the slides that we're supposed to be on. Uh, of the tabernacle, what it would have looked like. Uh, keep going. There you go. And so these are all the implements that we'll be looking at tonight. On the outside, you have the barrier of the court and the gate. Uh, once you go through there, you have the uh, bronze altar and then the bronze laver. And then you actually come to the tabernacle itself, which you see is in two parts. Uh, you have the holy place, which has uh, the golden lampstand, the table of uh, showbread, uh, and the altar of incense. And then you have uh, the second part of the tabernacle, which is the Holy of Holies, and the only thing in there is the Ark of the Covenant. And so I've decided to approach my teaching here, kind of working from the outside in, and we're going to finish with the Holy of Holies, and we'll start with uh, the barriers that are on the outside. Uh, and before we look at these details, I think it's important to note where the tabernacle was located, you know, in you know, the nation of Israel, as you can see from this picture, it's really at the center of the nation, which is important because God's kind of dwelling place is at the center, the easiest access. It would have been visible from uh, wherever you were with you know, your tent there. And so that's kind of where uh, God designed this to be. Uh, and so now as we come from the outside in, the first thing that we come to is the barrier court, um, which was made out of white linen. 
And the purpose of this court, really with this white linen barrier, was to keep people from coming into the tabernacle except through the one place that they were meant to, which is the gate. And so if you try to you know, come on the south side or the west side or the north side, you would come to this white linen barrier and it would force you to walk around to the east side where you have the gate, which is the only way you can get into the tabernacle. So the place where God dwelt has this surrounding barrier that's white linen. And, you know, this is important because everything that we're going to see here, you know, God specifically chooses materials. It's not just, yeah, well, let's just do white linen for that. And how about make that gold? And yeah, why not make that bronze? You know, there's very specific reasons why God chooses the colors and the materials for each thing in the tabernacle. And here with the white linen, we see in the Bible, white linen often speaks of purity, speaks of righteousness. When we see angels, they're always wearing these white linen garments and it, and it speaks of you know the, the pure righteous reality of their presence you know revelation tells us that once we go to heaven you know we're going to be given these beautiful white linen garments as well and it's speaking of the purity that we have now that we've been washed clean from our sin because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and so you know we have this reality of this white linen speaking of this purity and righteousness and it's this barrier that is around the tabernacle the dwelling place of God. And this is really where we start looking at, you know, kind of how this is God's plan of redemption. Because, you know, the start of the plan of redemption came because mankind sinned. You know, we saw that in Genesis in the garden, sin entered the world. Each person who was born after that was born into sin. And so we have this sin problem that keeps us from God. You know, he is pure. He is righteous. Our sin is the thing that keeps us from him. And so as we see this picture of purity and righteousness, this barrier around the tabernacle, there's only one way to get in. There's only one way to get to God, and it's through the door. Uh, and so, you know, this is the first thing that we see. And as we come to the, the gates, I guess you would say, as opposed to the door, uh, the gate of the tabernacle is made of blue and purple, scarlet thread, and fine woven white Linen. And once again, we, we see these colors in this. It's not just, wow, that's beautiful, but there's purpose. There's something specific about these colors that have a, a deeper significance. And we see that through scripture. Oftentimes, numbers have a greater significance than just, you know, the number seven or the number 12. And we see that with some of these colors as well, that oftentimes there's a deeper significance to them. Purple in the Bible usually speaks of royalty. Uh, kings would wear purple robes. It's always you know, often associated with that when it speaks of Jesus and, and his royalty. We have purple connected with him. Blue is often uh, connected with heaven. Uh, heaven is described as things like there's blue sapphire. Obviously, you can look up to the heavens. It's blue. Uh, scarlet uh, speaks of redemption and forgiveness. Isaiah says, though your skins were, uh, sins sorry, were as scarlet, he has made them white as snow. Uh, and we already looked at fine white linen speaks of purity and righteousness. And so when you look at the colors of this gate, you see royalty, you see heaven, redemption, atonement, purity, righteousness. And why that's important to note is that's exactly what you see when you look towards Jesus. Jesus is the king of heaven. He came down to pay for our sin, to bring redemption, to bring atonement. He came from heaven so that we could be pure and righteous before him. And he is the way. He is what you have to go through if you want to get to God. John 10, 9 tells us this, Jesus speaking. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus makes very clear, he's the way, he's the truth, he's the door. You want access to God, you have to come through Jesus in order to get it. And that's what we see here in the start of this redemptive plan of this barrier of purity, of righteousness, that sin can't get by it. Well, how do we get in? we got to go through the door. Who's the door? Jesus. He's the one that we have to come through if we want to have that relationship and access to God. So the court of the tabernacle is this barrier and the gate where we have royalty, heaven, redemption, atonement, purity, righteousness, all pointing to Jesus. Now, the first thing that you see when you come to the gate, before you even approach it, you'll be able to see through it. And once you walk into it, the first thing that you come to is the brazen or bronze altar. And this was a very important thing. You know, it was specifically placed there. This is the first thing that God wants people to see. As they come, they see the linen, they see the gate. When they walk in, the first thing that they come to is this altar of bronze. Now, bronze, once again, another thing that God didn't just say, let's make it out of bronze, it's shiny. No, bronze in the Bible speaks of judgment. And this was a place of judgment because this is a place where death happened, sacrifice happened, animals were placed on this, and they were burnt, they were uh, slaughtered there. So the purpose of this bronze altar was a place of sacrifice to atone for the sin of the nation of Israel. Now, there wasn't just sin offerings on this sacrifice, this altar. There was also burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings. But the sin offering is the most important. You know, it's the most significant one that you see. And there was really two different ways in which the nation of Israel approached it. The first way was individual. You would take your lamb, you would walk through the gate, you would walk your lamb to the priest, and then you would place your hand on this lamb's head, and ultimately you're saying, you know, I am placing my sin on this animal. This animal is going to die in my place. This animal is going to have their blood shed, and they're going to be put in the fire instead of me having my blood shed and placed in the fire. And so they are atoning for my personal sin. But there was also another thing that the nation of Israel did. The high priest would take a bull and he would bring the bull into the same altar and the bull was sacrificed for the nation of Israel's sin as a whole. And so there was the individual sacrifice and also the sacrifice for the nation of Israel as a whole. But you couldn't just use any old animal. When you came in personally, you had to have a lamb without blemish. It was one that had to be pure, and you would bring it, and that would be the one that would be the substitute for your sin. And so we see this, once again, is a wonderful picture of God's redemptive plan through Jesus. Jesus is that lamb. He's the one that takes away our individual sin, but also the one who paid for the sin of the world. In John chapter 1, verse 21, we're told, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
You see, Jesus was that innocent lamb, that one without blemish because he was sinless, and he's the one who took our punishment. He was, his blood was shed for us. You know, he took the judgment of God, the fire, so that we wouldn't have to suffer eternity in hell, and he was the one who took our place. So the first part of God's redemptive plan is to save us, to save us from our sin through the death and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And we see that with the white linen barrier. We see that with the gate. We see that with the bronze altar. But you know, God didn't just save us, or as we speak of justifying us, the the redemptive plan goes beyond that. And the second part of the redemptive plan is to sanctify us. And there are four different things within the tabernacle that point to the sanctification part of God's plan of redemption. We have the bronze laver, and then we come to the first part of the tabernacle, the holy place, where we have the golden lampstand, we have the table of showbread, we have the altar of incense. And all of these things deal with the kind of sanctification process in which God has in his redemptive plan. And so let's start with the first thing that you come to after you have the brazen altar between the altar and the tabernacle is this bronze laver. And so it's purposely uh, put in that location that before you get into the tabernacle, you have to come to this place. And the purpose of this laver, as you can see, uh, it is... um, full of water because it was for washing, it was for cleansing, and you would imagine, you know, there's a lot of blood. You know, the first place you come to, there's a lot of sacrifices of animals, and so these priests, this was a dirty job. You know, they're full of blood, of ashes from the fire, you know, and so before they would enter into the tabernacle, before they would do anything, you know, in that service to the Lord, God required of them that they would clean themselves, they would wash themselves, and this was very important to the Lord. And it's interesting, this is another thing that we see a picture of, because in the New Testament, as we, we see so much speaking of, of washing believers, we obviously have the fact that we're washed of our sin from the blood of Jesus. But when it comes to water, we see something else. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26 says, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Notice the connection with cleansing, washing, and the Word of God. Like the Word of God has this cleansing effect on the life of believers. And so the priest would daily cleanse themselves with the laborer. This was something before they entered into service, they needed to be clean. And we as believers, this is another part of that sanctification process where the Lord's like, you need to daily be in my word. My word is the thing that's going to bring that cleansing to your life that's so important for you to then be able to serve me, that you come as service out of that time with me. So the bronze laver is a picture of one of the ways God uses to sanctify us by washing and cleansing us through his word. Now, once you pass the bronze laver, you actually come to the tabernacle itself. Uh, You come to that very first portion, which is the holy place. You come through the curtain there and you have three different things that you're going to see in the holy place there the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then that second place is the Holy of Holies, uh, where we have the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there are two main purposes for the tabernacle and the two sections that we have here. 
The main purpose of the holy place was a place for ministry to be done by the priests. That's where most of the ministry took place in the holy place. They would do ministry unto the Lord in that place. And the main purpose of the holy of holies was to be the place where God dwelt. And only the high priest once a year was able to go there. But this was the dwelling place of God. The other was the ultimate kind of serving place toward God by the priests. And so once we come to Jesus, our gate, and we accept the sacrifice he offered for our sins, we're saved, we're justified, and then the sanctification process starts. One of those things that's so important is being washed by the word. But now we come to the tabernacle, we enter in, and one of the first things that you come to is the golden lampstand, which would have looked something like this. Now, this lampstand was to be made out of pure gold. So this is one huge piece of gold. We're actually not given dimensions in the Bible as to how big God wanted it. But right now, they want to build a third temple in Israel. They have everything that is necessary to go into it. When Jenny and I were in Israel, this was on display. And so this is the one that they are going to put in the third temple. As you can see, it's quite huge. You know, this huge golden lampstand. And the purpose of the lampstand is probably what you would think it would be to produce light. Now, why that's so important is because of something we didn't really look at about the tabernacle. And that's the fact that the tabernacle was covered by four different things on top of each other. There's a layer of curtains, a layer of goat's hair, a layer of ram skins, and a layer of badger skins. And when you have all these layers, guess what's not coming through? Any light. You know, that would keep out all the light. And so if there was no golden lampstand that was lit, you would come into the tabernacle and it'd be pitch black with all the curtains and everything. That was necessary for the priests to do any service. They can't see, they can't serve. So this was something that was so important for them. And that's why God tells them it's got to be continually lit. There's never going to be a time when this light goes out. I want it to always to be lit. And so they kept this golden lampstand lit continually. Now, as we already noted, the holy place of the tabernacle is the picture of where the body of Christ kind of does ministry to glorify God. And just like the priests were incapable of ministering without light, we are incapable of ministering without Jesus, who is our light. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, before you and I accepted Jesus, we lived in darkness. Our life was governed by sin. But when Jesus came into our life, we now have the light of the world who enables us to live differently, who enables us to live for God and to serve him. But before that, we didn't have the capacity to. You know, we need that light in order for us to truly be able to minister to God and bring him glory. But notice it wasn't just that, you know, the light um, was there for them, like Jesus is there to make it possible for us to minister to the Lord. They still had to do stuff. They still had to light it. And there was a, an aspect of them being a part of ministering. And we see that as well in Ephesians 5, 8 for us. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys now need to change. You need to now start living as children of light. He even goes on to say, you're the light of the world. You know, don't hide your light. Ultimately, shine your light for all to see. And so as believers, this is another one of those aspects of the sanctification process of Jesus the light. He enables us to do ministry, and he also calls us to be lights 
in ministering for him to this dark world. So the golden lampstand gave the priest light so they could work and glorify God, and Jesus gives us that light so that we can work and glorify God as well. The second thing you come to when you enter the holy place is the table of showbread. And this was made of acacia wood. It was overlaid with gold. And then there was 12 pieces of bread that would be placed on the table of showbread each week. Now, the table of showbread, its main purpose is just like the name it says. It was to show the bread, to display this bread. Uh, and the 12 pieces of bread represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was on display for a purpose. It was an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the priest would place these 12 pieces of bread on the table. It was an offering ministering to the Lord, but also it was something that would sustain them because after it sat out, they had to replace it. And they were to eat that bread in the holy place. This was a thing that would give them you know, the energy and the strength to continue to minister to the Lord. And so not only was it a, uh, something that was an offering made to the Lord, but it was also something that the priest partook of that enabled them to continue serving the Lord. And so it has this twofold purpose uh, that is very important that we see here, displaying bread as an offering to the Lord, feeding on it to do ministry to the Lord. And once again, this is a picture of how Jesus enables us to do ministry for God as this display. Ultimately, Jesus is the bread. John 6.35 tells us, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is the bread of life. He's the one who came down from heaven. He's the one who sacrificed his life. He was placed on display as a sacrifice and offering to the Lord. And when we accept him, this is a, a wonderful thing that we do. It's kind of the start of the ministry, but just like it, it wasn't just bread that was placed on display for God. It was also bread that was eaten in order for people to be able to be able to continue to minister towards the Lord, that there's more than just accepting the bread of life. We also need to partake of Jesus on a regular basis. We partake of him as we spend time with him, as we spend time in his word, as we allow him to be that spiritual sustenance, that spiritual bread that enables us to continue to be effective in ministering for the Lord. And when you don't take time to eat that bread, you're spiritually hungry and you're unable to uh, do the spiritual work that God has for you. So the table of showbread is this picture of Jesus, the bread of life who displayed himself on a cross as an offering to God on our behalf. And just like the loaves of bread were displayed for an offering of God for the Israelites, it's also a picture of how we need to partake of Jesus so that we can give all we need to continue to minister to the Lord. Well, now we come to the final thing in the holy place, and that is the altar of incense. And this was to be made as well out of acacia wood covered in gold. It would have looked something like this. And the purpose of the altar of incense was to have this sweet-smelling incense constantly going up to the Lord. Now, it's interesting where this is placed, because it's placed right against the veil, the veil that separates the holy place and the holy of holies. And as we're going to see in the holy of holies is where God dwelt. So the closest thing to the Holy of Holies without actually being in the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense. And this incense is to go up to the Lord 
constantly, this burning of incense was to just like the light, was to continue to be in there. So as you go in there, you would just have this smell of incense burning to the Lord. Now, once a year on the Day of Atonement, when the sin offering was offered for the sins of the nation of Israel, the high priest would come, and as you can see, there's four horns on the corners, and he would take the blood of the sacrifice, and he would put blood on each one of those horns, and this was a part of the atonement process that God wanted the high priest to do for the nation of Israel. So the purpose of the altar of incense was to have incense continually burning before the Lord, And it was the priest's responsibility to make sure that it continually burned. And the high priest was part of doing this, uh, putting the blood on it for the sin offering of the nation of Israel. Now, throughout the Bible, incense is something that's connected with prayer. And so when we look at, well, well, how does this show the sanctification process for us? It's a twofold thing because the only reason that we really have any access to pray to God is because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. You know, as we look at the high priest and this is connected to that sacrifice that was given for the nation of Israel for their sin, Jesus' sacrifice for us gives us access to God in prayer, gives us this wonderful privilege of prayer that unfortunately we don't take advantage of enough, but Jesus is the reason why we have it. But Jesus didn't just make it possible for us to pray. He also prays for us. This is a wonderful picture of of Jesus' regular prayer on our behalf as well. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore Jesus is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8.34 says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. And so one of the pictures we see here from the altar of incense is this picture of Jesus who continually prays for us, which is just an amazing picture of him on the throne there, and he's just praying for us to the Father on behalf of us, his children, and it's just a great thing. But you know what? This is also a picture of you and I in our service to the Lord. Of You know, if you really want to be effective in serving Jesus in this sanctification process, you have to be men and women of prayer. Revelation 5.8 tells us this. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a beautiful picture because Revelation is showing us the heavenly tabernacle. We see here the earthly tabernacle, but in the heavenly tabernacle, notice what we're told, the bowls full of incense are what? The prayers of the saints. And so this is something that's so important that, hey, this is the connection that we see here, that this is representing our prayer life and the importance of us to take advantage of that. Jesus made it possible through his sacrifice, but now God says, here, I give you access to me in prayer. And there's huge power in prayer, but you are the one who has to pray. You are the one who has to take advantage of that in order to receive the power and the answers that come through that. And so this is something that God wants us to continually do. Just like incense was regularly lifted up, Thessalonians tells us to pray without ceasing. This is part of the sanctification process for us as believers. And so once again, we see another wonderful picture here of Jesus who made it possible for prayer to happen and for prayer to be something that he does regularly for us and that we follow that example and regularly pray as well. So the first part of the plan of redemption is to save us from our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. We see that with the white linen barrier. We see that with the gates and the bronze altar. 
And the second part of God's plan of redemption is to sanctify us in order to help us grow to become more like Jesus and to enable us to do ministry unto Jesus. And we see that through the bronze laver, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And now we come to the third and final part of God's plan of redemption, which takes us into the Holy of Holies. And there's only one thing in there, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And we see this third part of God's plan of redemption in such a powerful way. The Ark of the Covenant was to be made of acacia wood, covered in pure gold, and on the inside and on the outside. And then there was a lid. And this lid was called the mercy seat. And this lid was all one solid piece of gold and connected into this mercy seat were two cherubim that had these wings that were stretched out and and would look like that in that picture. And they were looking down at the mercy seat. And this is a very important thing that God does. Um, And so... Inside the ark, God has them put three things. He has them put the the Ten Commandments, the law. He has them put Aaron's rod that budded. And he has them put a jar of manna, the miraculous food that God provided. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is the only thing in the Holy of Holies. And it really has three main purposes. And the first purpose would be the one that you would think would be the most obvious. And that is to hold the stuff that God said put in it. So it's to hold the Ten Commandments, to hold the the rod that budded, to hold the jar of manna. But I want you to understand, it's called the Ark of the Covenant. And the things that are placed in it are representatives of God's covenant that he made with the nation of Israel. And so that covenant was based in his law. That covenant was based on the priestly tribe that he chose. The covenant was based on the provision that he would bring. And so each one of those things was a reminder of his covenant. The Ten Commandments was a reminder of the law that God gave to Israel. The law that he said, hey, the covenant's based on this. You keep it, we got it going here. This is, this is what it's about. Aaron's rod that budded was a reminder of their obedience and the need to obey. Now, we didn't cover this in Exodus because it's not in Exodus, it's in Leviticus, but the the nation of Israel, they say, why is the tribe of Levi the priestly tribe? And they have this confusion. You know, other tribes want to be the priestly tribe, and they start fighting with one another because they're, they're wanting that special role, and, you know, Dan's fighting Judah, and, and it's going on and on. And so God says, hey, everybody stop. I want you to take the leader of your tribe, and they are going to carry out the rod. And whatever rod buds is the one that is my priestly tribe. Aaron was the leader of the tribe of Levi, and it was his rod that budded, which was God saying clearly, I mean, you have a rod. Obviously, rods don't bud when they're just a piece of wood by themselves, not connected to anything. And so God does this to tell them, this is my tribe. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe. Start obeying me and obeying what I have for you in that. And then the third thing that reminded him of the um, provision of God was the jar of manna. As we saw through the nation of Israel going through the wandering in the wilderness, God provided that manna miraculously for them. And so we see what was in the ark, what the ark held, and the name of it itself, of the covenant. It's a reminder of the covenant that God made with them. The second purpose of the ark of the covenant was a place where God's presence came and dwelt. In Exodus 25, verse 22, we're told, And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in in commandment to the children of Israel. 
And so when we say the Holy of Holies is the dwelling place of God, here we get even more specific that God says, actually, I'm going to dwell right above the mercy seat and between the cherubim. You know, that's going to be where I am. And if the high priest comes in, I'll be there. And then we'll communicate. And I'll speak to the high priest from that very place of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the second thing we see of the purpose, it's the dwelling place of God. And the third purpose of the Ark of the Covenant was it was the place that the high priest atoned for the sin of the nation of Israel once a year. So once a year, we have what is called the Day of Atonement. The day in which the high priest would go and atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And we already saw two other elements that were used. Remember, the brazen altar, the bull would come, be sacrificed on the day of atonement for the sin of the nation of Israel. The high priest would take some of that blood and he would put it around the horns of the altar of incense, also in dealing with the sin of the nation of Israel. But the most important thing of all, because here's the one man who can come into the Holy of Holies, and this is the only day of the year. So 364 days, he's not allowed in. This one day, he can come in, and he comes in with the blood of the sacrifice that was just made on the altar for the nation of Israel, and he puts that blood on the mercy seat. Now, this is so significant when you see the picture here because you have these two cherubim which represent God's judgment. Their wings are outstretched, but notice they're looking down. They see the mercy seat, but notice what's right below the mercy seat, the law. But here's the problem. The nation of Israel has broken the law. So here's these representatives of God's judgment looking down on the broken law of the nation of Israel, which causes them to deserve God's judgment. But there's one thing in between the broken law and the judgment, and that's the mercy seat. The place where instead of receiving judgment, they can receive mercy. Well, what had to go on the mercy seat? The blood of the sacrifice. And as the blood is sprinkled, notice that these uh, pictures of judgment are looking down. And now instead of seeing the broken law, they see the shed blood of the sacrifice, which atoned for the sin. And instead of receiving judgment that they deserved, the nation of Israel received the mercy of God instead because of this sacrifice. And it's just a beautiful picture of something to come. Because God had a plan of redemption. And this was all pointing to what he ultimately was going to do. And that's what we see. This is probably the most clear one that it wouldn't be hard for you to realize. This is pointing to Jesus, who is our mercy seat. He is the one whose blood was shed. He is the one who ultimately, as God looks down and wants to bring his judgment on mankind because we've broken his law, he looks to the cross, he looks to his son, he looks to the shed blood of Jesus and says, I will offer mercy instead of judgment. I will offer salvation instead of condemnation because of what Jesus has done for us. But you know what? It's also pointing to something else. As beautiful that picture is, there's an old covenant. And the old covenant wasn't nearly as good as what God had planned in the future, which is the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of the new covenant. Verses 6 through 10, it says, now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. 
For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. So Hebrews tells us this high priest can only go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year, but yet the way into the Holy of Holies was really not made manifest yet in the first tabernacle. God said, no, no, I got, I got a much better plan. Yeah, there's only one guy one time a year who gets to come in here, but I have something that's going to be a part of my new covenant that's far superior than the access that you have to me in this old covenant. This was symbolic of the time of reformation of something still to come. And so Hebrews 9 doesn't stop there. It tells us what's going to come in verse 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled the unclean sanctifies for the purity of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through him the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So notice this, Jesus, we're told, is the high priest of what the perfect tabernacle of God and he's different than the high priest that was there in the tabernacle who used the blood of goats the blood of bulls to ultimately pay for a sacrifice Jesus didn't use that he used his own blood he sacrificed himself and it says once for all notice that this every year the day of atonement happened every year this animal had to be sacrificed every year this had to take place Jesus says no I'm going to do it once for all no more need for sacrifice my sacrifice is enough to pay for the sin of the world and it's opening up a new covenant which enables us to receive the promise of the internal inheritance you know right before jesus goes to the cross he spends time with his disciples in the upper room and he says something to them about this that at that time they didn't really grasp matthew 26 28 says for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins now, Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross, and they're probably thinking, like, what are you talking about? Your blood that's shed for the remission of sin that's pointing to a new covenant, not the old covenant. Jesus is preparing them. Hey, my blood is representing something new, new that's coming. The access that you had in the old covenant, the relationship that you had based on the old covenant, I got something new coming that is so far superior to that because of what I'm about to do on the cross for the sin of the world. Mark 15, 37 and 38 says this. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, this is something that's so interesting. When Jesus dies on the cross, notice what's ripped in half. 
And this is something that God did. You could see man would have to rip it from bottom to top. God rips it from top to bottom. Why? This was the place that only one guy, the high priest, one time a year on the Day of Atonement could come into the presence of God. But when Jesus died for our sin, God is saying, now the new covenant is available. Access to me is available. It's not just one high priest one time a year. It's anyone who puts their faith in Jesus has full access to me any day of the year that they want. And so now this thing that blocked people from my presence is ripped in two because now my presence is available to all who will come to my son and accept what he's done on the cross for the sin of the world. So we see a nice little picture there, huh? So the reason this is so significant is because of now the access that we have to God that they did not have in the Old Testament. Hebrews Chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living covenant, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Hey, you guys can boldly come to the place that no one would have thought in the Old Testament. Even the high priest was fearful to to, to come in that one time a year. No, no, you can come boldly. Jesus has dealt with our sin. We have access now. We can come into the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God, because of what Jesus has done. And we can do it at any time. We have this amazing privilege under the new covenant. And just like the privilege of prayer, this is another one of those privileges that unfortunately we often waste. And I think the Old Testament people, if we were to speak with them, especially the high priest, and we would tell the access we have, and they would think, man, you must just live in that. Uh, no, I don't really take advantage of it too much. I mean, they would just be dumbfounded by how foolish that is. So the first part of God's plan of redemption is to save us from our sin through Jesus' death on the cross. We see that with the white linen barrier, the gates, and the brazen altar. The second part of God's plan of redemption is to sanctify us in order to help us grow to become more like Jesus, to enable us to do and be used to do ministry unto Jesus We see this with the bronze labor, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And finally, the third part of God's plan of redemption is to give us complete access to him under the new covenant established by Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And we see this with the Ark of the Covenant. So God has two main purposes for why he wanted the tabernacle built after a very specific pattern The first purpose is, hey, we have a heavenly uh, tabernacle, and I want the the earthly one to be patterned after it so you can kind of see what that is. And unfortunately, we didn't spend too much time in that, but I hope a lot of the pictures and stuff gives you a better visual of what the heavenly tabernacle might look like. But the second purpose, which we focused on tonight, is it's a picture of God's beautiful plan of redemption that we see in these three wonderful ways to save us, to sanctify us, and to give us this new covenant of complete access to him. And so I know that's a lot of information to cover at once, but I hope it gives you a better overview of the tabernacle as you look even at the temple as well. And you see all these different things that are going on. You're thinking, what was the point of all that? Why the sacrificial system? Why the labor? Why the lampstand? Why this and that? That you now have a better grasp of what that is. And like I said before, I encourage you to go back, read through those chapters that give more details, uh, and that will hopefully give you more insights into this as well. So let's go ahead uh, and pray. Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done for us. So grateful that as we look through the Old Testament, we just see picture 
example, illustration after illustration of your plan that started back in the garden right after sin took place of being wanting to send the Redeemer, Jesus. And as you've shown throughout the Old Testament, things that point to that plan, point to what you had, point to what Jesus would do. And we just love that we can see this in the tabernacle and see that you've always had this plan ready to deal with the sin that we have committed and bring us to a place where we could have that wonderful access to you. And so we are grateful. We are so thankful for who you are, for what you've done. And Lord, we just pray that as always, as we come to your word, Lord, that it would not return void to us, that you would just help the truths of it just uh, resonate with us, speak to us, Father, uh, in a way that would just bring us closer to you, in a way that would help us understand more about you, uh, and just bless us in that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into just a time of prayer for each other, I wanted to as I said at the beginning, I'll give you more detail. Why did we not you know, spend several weeks going through the tabernacle? Why did you cover it all uh, in one week? And that's because we're making some changes uh, on Thursday night. And, and the main thing driving these changes is just the reality that you know, what I make uh, through the church and what I make through the pool coming.